because the only way I felt worthy was when I did everything, when I looked perfectly, when I acted perfectly. And that became who I was. Like I didn't even know I was hiding anything, but there was this simmering undercurrent of just this deep anguish that I just repressed my whole life. Welcome to the Women on the Move podcast. I'm your host, Sam Saperstein. In this episode, I'm speaking with Melissa Bernstein, co-founder of Melissa and Doug Toys, author, and co-founder of Lifelines, a new company focused on well-being. I am so inspired by her journey toward understanding her experience with existential angst, and I'm fascinated by how she turned this into a business to help others. I hope you enjoy the conversation. So Melissa, thank you so much for being with us on the Women on the Move podcast. It is great to have you on. I am so excited to be here. Can't wait. You've had such an amazing career, and we're going to get into every aspect of it. You've been an entrepreneur two times now with Melissa and Doug Toys, now with a new company called Lifelines. You're an author. I'd love to get into everything, but let's start with the last few years. You know, During the pandemic, you're launching Lifelines, a new company. Can you tell us about that? Tell us about this latest journey of yours and how things have unfolded for you over the last few years. It's been nothing short of, there's a word I use, exilifying. It's the combination of exhilarating and terrifying. And it's sort of the exact juncture of where I would say I've been the last couple of years because I did something really scary about a year and a half ago, which was I kind of came out with a truth that I had been sort of repressing and denying and disassociating from my whole life. And it was that authentic story of who I am. I've basically become sort of enlightened in taking this burden of what I was holding off my shoulders and really coming out and saying who I am. So tell us about that. Tell us about this burden that you're referencing, what it is that you were struggling with and what it led you to do in terms of lifelines. Sure. I mean, it's something that I was born with, actually, that I now know. And it's pretty rare. It's called existential angst. And it's basically a crisis of meaning that from my earliest recollection, I struggled with asking these three questions like, why am I here? What is the meaning of life if we are ultimately not going to be here? And kind of what am I meant to do during my brief time here? And because I thought these questions so young, and when I sort of asked those around me, kind of these deep, dark questions, people didn't really want to hear that from a little child. In fact, sort of the message I got was like, you're too, you are too introspective, you're too deep, you're too questioning, emotional, and you need to go out and play. Like, that's what children do. They don't ask these deep questions. So I basically got the message that it wasn't okay to be who I was. And, you know, we all have that physiological, biological need to belong and be accepted. So when you get the message early on that it's not okay to be who you really are, which was like this heavy, introspective, creative introvert, I needed to change to become who would be validated by society. And that was this shiny facade of basically the person who pleased and did everything right and got all the gold stars. And I was perfect in every way. And I couldn't be less than perfect because the only way I felt worthy was when I did everything, when I looked perfectly, when I acted perfectly. And that became who I was. Like I didn't even know I was hiding anything, 
but there was this simmering undercurrent of just this deep anguish that I just repressed my whole life. And we can do that pretty effectively when we're young. And I was an achiever. My type of angst, my type of despair is actually pretty good if you want to be an effective producer, because I needed to incessantly produce to try to find that meaning and make that legacy. And that's what I did. You know, I ultimately did sort of find a way to channel that darkness. It was dark into light through Melissa and Doug and making these toys. It was pretty incredible. Ultimately, about two years ago, that cry of my own soul to be seen authentically grew so loud. It was deafening. And I started to see that even though creating toys for 33 years back then had been like my salvation, my lifeline, and my reason for being, it was almost like the facade I had created. I started to feel like it was a little bit like hiding myself behind this shiny smile. I was sort of hiding the true spectrum of who I was, that full spectrum of darkness behind these shiny toys that were part of me, obviously. They were the light from the dark, but there was a lot of darkness that I had never come to terms with or shared with myself, with my family, with anyone. In reading about what you went through, I was just so struck by, as you just said, you lived with this your whole life. You didn't know any differently. You didn't know there was something called what you ultimately were diagnosed with and that you did gravitate to toys and creativity as such an outlet. I mean, maybe it's not so coincidental. Maybe that's what you were meant to do. That's the right outlet for you. But when you finally came to terms with what this was that you were going through, did that occur because of COVID? Do you think you would have gotten there eventually? You know, tell us about that aha moment, that eureka moment for you. No, it had nothing to do with COVID. It just happened to be sort of the same timing. You know, I believe, I call them dot moments, that life is about a lot of these dots, these moments that happen that at the time they happen, you might not even realize they're going to be a dot moment. But then you start connecting the dots, literally, and they form the arc of your life. And I started to have a few of these profound dot moments. It started with listening, actually, to a podcast. There was a podcast I'd listened to. It was so inspirational to me. It was called The Good Life Project. The host was this guy, Jonathan Fields. And his guests were just so powerful. And I think what was happening is I was trying to get up the courage to share my truth, my story. And because I didn't yet have it, I needed to listen to others telling their deep stories because I don't have that need anymore. I was rabid and every story, at least on his podcast that I listened to, like resonated with me so deeply. And he talked about one of his favorite books was this book, Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. And I had it on my bookshelf. And this is what is so incredible about dot moments, right? I had read that book in my 20s and I thought it was a cool story, but it didn't speak to me. But 30 years later, or 25 years later, I decided because he mentioned it so many times, you know what, I'm going to read that book again. And that book changed my life. Because Viktor Frankl, who was in a concentration camp and really had no meaning, had all the meaning stripped from his life, learned how to find meaning even in the most dire of circumstances. And in fact, when he got out, he founded a school of existential therapy called Logotherapy, which is healing through meaning. And when I read about existential therapy and logotherapy, I was like, that's strange. Like I am a word person, but I've never heard that word. And I started to read about existential despair and existential angst. And I literally, it was like, when you have a lightning bolt hit you, 
I was like, oh my gosh, this is me. And then of course, when you start to connect the dots, right, and follow the clues like a trail of breadcrumbs, I then started to see that those who experience existential despair, it's an ability to ponder higher realities and it requires a bit of oversensitivity, emotional oversensitivity and being able to feel very deeply, intellectual oversensitivity and being able to think about these abstruse thoughts and imaginational oversensitivity and being able to imagine things that are kind of like hard to imagine. I realized that there's a deep connection between those who have existential angst and those who are super creative because the very qualities that lead us to ponder these deep, dark realities also lead us to experience the beauty and the joy of the wonder and the wonder of the world so profoundly that it's, I always say both the beauty and the pain of the world are unbearable for me. I could vacillate between the profound highs and the devastating lows in a minute. That is unbelievable. Thank you for sharing that story with us and with so many people through your book and your writings. This led to founding Lifelines. So tell us about what Lifelines is meant to do and how you channeled what you learned, what you experienced, you know, your own mental health needs into this company that now benefits so many other people. So I ended up going on that podcast. That's the reason I shared that story. Because when I went on that podcast and shared my story and it came out, the most incredible thing happened. I received like a couple letters, then a couple more, then a whole lot more. And it soon was hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of letters. And they all said words that were like music to my ears. They said, you expressed something that I've never been able to express myself. And you're the first person that gave voice to what I'm feeling as well. And that very moment when I heard it, I probably needed to hear it a couple hundred times. I realized I have enjoyed making toys more than anything. There is no greater gift than having the ability to ignite a child's imagination. Like nothing is better, but there is something I believe I can do in addition to that. And that's potentially save someone's life. Because being on that podcast showed me the three core tenets, basically, that wanted to come out so I could create lifelines, which were one, that I wasn't alone anymore, because I think when we feel different, right, and we have to deny the truth of who we are, which is what I did my whole life. I didn't even know it. It was so repressed. And I just showed another face that I didn't even know who I was. I literally had no idea. And inside I was seething. I was feeling really angry that no one liked or respected or wanted to befriend the real Melissa. And once I heard from all these people in showing my authentic self, I realized how many others feel that way as well. And I felt like it's my obligation. It took me, you know, half my life to come out and share this and be confident in saying, this is who I am. Like I need to show others that they're not alone and they can have courage to share their authentic truth as well. Then the second thing that came out of that, because I I ended up speaking with hundreds of these people by phone because I wanted to connect so desperately with people like me. And they basically said to me, like, Melissa, what we're experiencing is very much the same as you, but there's one big difference. You've figured out the way to channel your darkness into light and make meaning. I haven't. I'm still stuck in the darkness. How do I figure out what my secret sauce is, what my special form of self-expression is? And how do I bring it out to the world? And I was like, oh my gosh, there's no, again, no greater gift other than sparking a child's imagination than helping someone unearth that special seed in themselves 
that is like desperate to germinate into a beautiful flower. So I wanted to help others to find that seed, to unearth it. And because it's in all of us, even though we don't believe it. And then three, really, once I came out and sort of said who I was, I still had a lot of work to do because I could verbalize it, but I still hadn't yet gone inward and actually investigated those feelings that I had run from my entire life and really accepted that Melissa Bernstein is the full emotional spectrum from the lowest of lows, which is the existential nihilism. That's the deepest, darkest pessimism to the highest of highs, like unbounding, limitless joy. And that took a lot of courage because I had to admit for the first time ever that I needed help. And perfectionists do not admit we need help. And I never accepted help. If someone tried to open a door for me, I would like swat away their hand and be like, I don't need your help. But the truth was, I did need people and I did need help. So I finally admitted I needed help. I enlisted the help of a trained professional therapist and I made that inward journey. And the third lesson really, and it wasn't until I did that, that I was able to stop looking externally for my validation and stop chasing, chasing, chasing and engaging in the futile treadmill race of more, 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 and more material and more stuff and more creative outlets and more everything. And finally, go inward and learn to feel and learn to accept that it's okay to just be who I am and not have to prove it externally. And that journey, I turned into Lifelines and a lot of the content for Lifelines because that journey was so profound. It took me five years to actually get through my journey because some of those feelings were really, really dark and I almost didn't come out of them. But once I did, I was like, I can do this. And if I can do this, anybody can do this. It is so profound to hear you describe this. It's really remarkable. I'm struck by so many things. We can go in so many directions, but you know, the thought that you channeled such really raw, deep feelings into beauty for children And now moving into adults and really helping adults with the same thing is just remarkable. And so thank you for that. That is just amazing. I'm curious, knowing this now about yourself, has that impacted your creativity at all? Does it change the way you approach Melissa and Doug and the toy making business? It's an amazing question. Brings up a really cool fallacy that I believed. I always believed in the like tormented creative myth. And I had a bit of fear that if I lost my despair, that I wouldn't be able to create anymore because I was tortured. The stuff I channeled into those toys, that's why it is the biggest irony of my life that I would be making 10,000 toys because the darkness was, was dark. And I thought, if I lose the darkness, what am I channeling? What is gonna channel into all that creativity? But the fascinating thing, and my therapist, she's wonderful. I asked her that question a lot. I said, if I like give up all these repressed feelings. Am I going to lose my, like my spark? And she was like, Melissa, your spark is only going to begin to be kindled. And she was incredibly right. And I think about it. I have metaphors for everything because I live in my imagination. I think about it as my channel, right? If I consider myself a tree trunk and my whole life, because I was so blocked, I was so emotionally stifled. My only emotion, my whole life was I'm great. Fine, good, perfect. I never felt sick. 
I never took a sick day. I never allowed myself to be anything other than perfect. So my channel was really blocked. And when I think about my creativity, even though I incessantly created, I feel like if these are my branches, it was coming through like one tiny little vein in the tree, out like a little vein in my arm and out my thumb and forefinger, which hold my pencil. (laughs) And it was like eking out because I needed it for my salvation, but it could barely get out. And as I started to unearth, right, the truth of who I was and kind of take away all these layers of pretension and facade and fallacies and misperceptions that I had been clinging to my whole life. I'm alone. No one will ever love me. You know, I'm worthless, like all these horrible things. My channel started clearing out and I started almost like whittling away ultimately. And now I feel like I'm a hollow channel and I'm literally, my feet are my roots that are in the earth and my arms are my hands stretched out toward the heavens. And I am just flowing baby from my roots all the way through my branches out into the heavens. The fact that you could unleash even so much more is so powerful. I wonder when you look back and you see the toys you designed, Do you think to yourself, oh, I designed that and I was in a good place or a bad place or I remember doing this one? And does it bring you back to certain times of your life? You know, every time I create, I go back to the exact same place. The creation process for me is sacred. It is truly my salvation. I'll get emotional even if I talk about it. That's how important it is to me. And when I create, I go to a place that is so blissful and so white space that it is, my only guess is it must be like heaven. And I have to go to that same place every single time or it won't be pure. So I don't create out of anything other than that space. And that's the honor I must pay to everything I create for it to truly have a heartbeat and a soul. I just go back there every single time and I don't allow anything to get in the way. I'd love to understand the beginnings of the business, the Melissa and Doug business now And when you started with your husband, Doug, wasn't your husband then, apparently he proposed not marriage, but that you would create a toy company together. How did that occur? How did you meet? And how did that idea to go into business first come about? Well, our parents actually introduced us, which is really funny because I had someone else at the time, but my mom thought he would be great for me, which really offended me. Like, you don't, you know, you don't think I can find my own person, mom, but ultimately see mother knows best. So we met when I was the summer of my junior year of college. So I've known Doug since I was 19 years old and he was already working. He was a a few years older. He was working in advertising. And right out of school, not many people know this, but I went into investment banking and the investment banking analyst was the hottest job out of college. Even though, by the way, numbers don't speak to me. I mean, I'm a word person and I'm a note person. I'm music and numbers like they just just sit on the page. We were both working our jobs and honestly, our souls weren't singing. Like we were both feeling like I felt like a flower without sunlight and water. And, you know, because I looked at these people around me who loved what they were doing, like the numbers, they turned them into these beautiful spreadsheets and these models. And I literally, I felt like I was remedial and I felt literally like a freshwater fish that was thrown in the ocean. It wasn't my language. So Doug was feeling similarly that there had to be something more. There had to be a reason that we wanted to get out of bed each day. So we decided we were going to go away on this faithful weekend and we were going to go to a bed and breakfast in Lenox, Massachusetts. 
And we would not come back until we decided what business we were going to do together. And we immediately honed in on children. We are generalists. It wasn't like we're going to take our skills. I mean, we really didn't even know we had any skills. All our parents were involved in education and felt like this is something we want to do our entire lives. We don't want to do this for just a year or two. So what's something that we're going to feel really good about decades later that we impacted? We were like, it has to be children. And then we had a whole bunch of different ideas, to be honest. We thought about for a long time about a school, like a different type of school that instead of the formal, rote, learning, you know, memorization or regurgitation, like we teach life skills. And, and I think that would have been an awesome business too. But at the end of the day, we sort of thought about products. And we saw that a lot of the toys that had been the hallmark of our childhood, like these beautiful, timeless, classic playthings, didn't really exist anymore. And when they did exist, they were so dull, boring, lackluster, and really, really expensive. And we started to have the germ of that question we wanted to answer, which is, can we reimagine dull, boring, lackluster toys and bring them to life in a child's hands? Well, as a mother of three, having had many of your toys in our household, I can say you answer that question well and definitely revolutionize it. When I think back, you know, I don't know if it's the chunky puzzles with the little handles or all the food in the kitchen. And I wonder, you know, when you think about right now, the time that children spend online and not with toys in the electronic world, tell us what the value of your products are, particularly right now when there's so much distraction and our kids are living in this, you know, electronic and digital age. So our toys are what are called open-ended toys. They are basically 90% about the child and 10% about the toy. So that means that the toy is doing relatively nothing, but in the unique child's hands, that toy becomes the catalyst, right? To ignite their imagination. And then that toy becomes anything they want it to be. And when you do that, when you give a child an open-ended toy, you are giving them the gift of ideation, of problem solving, of creativity, of invention, of mastery, right? Of all these beautiful gifts that are so important and we don't have today. You know, they talk about kids not having grit and resilience and agency. We haven't given them a childhood of trial and error and discovery. And it's through playing with things that you learn. It's also toleration of boredom. I don't know if it's the chicken or the egg, but I think one of the reasons I am so creative is because I had to stare at that blank canvas every single day. I had nothing to do. I had no activities. I had no one to play with. I had very few friends and I had an existential egg. So I needed to make meaning. So I had to say, Melissa, you got the blank canvas in front of you. If you don't fill it with something magical by the end of the day, then this day is kind of worthless and meaningless. So I had to fill it with nothing but my imagination. You're in a very competitive business in the toy business. How do you get customer feedback as part of your process? How do you listen to the voice of the customer? That's how we like to describe it. Or do you not? Or do does it really come from you in terms of what you think the customer wants? So... The customer feedback is the most important thing to us and has always been to me. So important, in fact, that we did something really, really unique from the beginning. We do a lot of trade shows. And in fact, at one point, we did over 150 trade shows around the world. Those are the shows where all the retailers come and you display your wares and the retailers place orders. 
And we would have so many salespeople at each of these shows. And really, that was the time you got the most feedback, right? Because you were seeing thousands and thousands of retailers. And they were basically looking at your product and placing an order or not and kind of giving you comments like, I don't want that because, or wow, I love that because. And what we developed 25 years ago was a survey for every single one of our salespeople that they had to fill out every single night based on the feedback that they got from their customers that day. And we wanted it to be brutal because I needed to know. I didn't want to make something. And the other great thing, you know, when, when you're sort of a hollow channel, I don't cling to the creations. If customers don't like them, it's okay. There's another one behind it. So I want to make it the best it can be. And I want to hear the ugly truth, even though sometimes, yeah, it can be hurtful. So we had this really fun thing. We would get these surveys every night. And like our biggest show, the New York Toy Show, which is four days long in the Javits Center in New York City, and we'd have 80 salespeople there, each getting a survey every night for four days. So there were hundreds of them. I had them in a lock and key box. They were that precious to me. And I would devour them. The minute I got the first day, I was still at the show and I had a busy day, but I would at night, I would stay up to like 2 a.m. reading them and taking notes. And what we ended up creating from that, we sort of used the American Idol thing. We basically had a huge meeting after Toy Fair and we'd have our who's going to Hollywood list. And then we had our, you need a little like surgery, but you might have a chance to go to Hollywood. And then we had our, see you later, sweetie. It's time for the burger. That's amazing. I mean, the fact that you were so close to what they were saying, you wanted that all the time is real time. I think that's phenomenal. You know, I'd love to go back to your current work with Lifelines and really mental health in general. How do you express to employees that they should take care of their mental health? And how do you encourage them to come forward with their needs? I'm a big believer in leading by example and leading with authenticity. I think when you know, leaders themselves aren't honest about their trials and tribulations and their truth, it's really hard for people below them to be honest, right? Because they're not being an example of what others should do. So I, I'll use myself as an example. Like, I was the stoic leader. People didn't come to me at all for years because I was like, bear through it. I mean, I was pretty much like, be strong. However, when I did come out about, you know, a year and a half ago, oh my gosh, I realized that I had just made an error. The minute I showed my vulnerability and my authenticity, I had literally a line of people waiting outside my desk. They all had stories that they now felt comfortable sharing. And it was really emotional for me that I had disallowed that just because of my own behavior. You know, it was only when I could be empathetic and compassionate toward myself and accept my own foibles that I was able to be empathetic and compassionate toward others. People listening to this might think, that is great. I'd love to have leaders like that. What happens when I come into the office and I can't suppress my emotions? I'm going through a hard time. I'm really grappling with something. It's hard for me to be at work. How do you advise people to maintain the balance of work and their personal life and try to continue to do good work while they're really struggling? I mean, I think it's different for everyone. At Lifelines, we've developed now this framework, which is this practice that I use called Practice Makes Purpose. And that's a whole sort of physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual like well-being practice. So I would use some of my own tools 
whenever I'm triggered, for example, which I am all the time, we're human. And for me, I'm never going to be fully evolved. I'm going to continue, continue to have triggers my whole life. I know it. But now I have a process I go through. I call it the journey to inner space. And there's an acronym and we could talk about that forever. I think we need tools. I mean, we can't just stay in our reactive heads and expect to do good work. And we have to really define the problem. You know, what is the problem? If, if your child is really in a despairing state, it might be hard to go back to work. You might have to say to that employee, you know what, take the rest of the day off, deal with that issue, come back in fresh tomorrow. It really depends on what it is. So it sounds like that process might be one you teach people consistently, but different things might help different people, whether it's meditation or exercise, right? What are the things that tend to work for you? It's different every day and it takes a lot of things. But I think for me, one of the most important things is my physical well-being. I do this because our practice is in four branches and, and this is the first branch over here and it's vitalized. So it's how do I keep myself vital and keep my life force sort of full of energy and being someone who was very austere. You know, I denied myself a lot of pleasure because I thought it was indulgent and I thought I deserved to suffer. It was kind of this weird mentality. I have a hard time taking care of myself because I always take care of others and I'm a pleaser. So that's a hard one for me. So I think I have to really make sure I'm taking care of myself, which means simple things. But for me, they're hard. Making sure I eat because I tend to skip meals if I'm busy and I don't even realize I'm getting depleted. I don't like to sleep. That's a real problem for me. And, you know, making sure I get my, we call it joyful movement because exercise was very punishing when I used to do it. I get my joyful movement every day without fail, because if I don't do something to like get out from behind a desk, so to speak. I become a little sad. Then there's the grounding, which is what do I do to get out of my head and into my heart? And, you know, because our heads can tend to be dark places and aren't really living here in the present moment. So I do a lot of grounding exercises to come home. And I tend to believe I don't need anyone in my life. I have to make sure I prioritize like connection with people. And I'm not talking like the work connection where you have to pass someone, hey, how's it going? Great. You know, I mean, like the deep connection and we all need it biologically. So I prioritize that now, actually. And I have a, a few really good friends for the first time. And I really take it seriously now. I try to be there for them and make sure that I engage with them. And then the last is like a combination of play and purpose. I love your mentioning of friends. And if you don't suffer from some of these things yourself, but your friends, your families do, how can you better help others? address some of these mental health concerns? You know, what does a good friend and ally look like to someone who suffers from these things? Having been someone who suffered quietly with this, honestly, I think it's nothing more than being a really good listener. The truth is you are not going to solve someone else's problems. And to be honest, your advice for them may not be the right advice for them. You can never know what is right for them. And unless they ask you, what should I do? Like I've learned being a parent of six, never offer advice when it's not asked for. It's still a lesson I'm learning every single day. What I try to do is say, tell me your story. Tell me what's going on. And then I just say, wow, I just offer them empathy and offer them compassion and say to them, is there anything I can do? I always ask, what can I do to support you? And sometimes they say, this was enough. 
I just needed you to hear. Sometimes they say, can you give me the name of a therapist? Sometimes they say, can you give me some tools? It just depends, again, on the specific uh, individual. I talk to a whole bunch of individuals. Pretty much anyone who reaches out to me who has a compelling story, I speak with individually. And that's my most meaningful moments, to be honest. I don't have letters by my name. I'm not a professional. So all I really can do for them is listen to them, tell them I understand and they're not alone, and share with them if they ask the tools that have helped me. Because I came out of a whole lot of darkness into a whole lot of light, and I know that they can do it too. Well, this just leaves me with a lot of hope. And so I guess in my wrap up, would love to understand from you, what is your piece of advice for others? What do you hope people come away with learning when you talk about your story and bring your messages out? I've really gone from being an existential nihilist who is someone who believed they were completely disempowered and a victim of their fate and had no ability to make change to an existentialist who believes quite the opposite, that we as individuals must and have the obligation to take responsibility for making meaning in our lives. And that's really my message now, that despite where we may be and despite what we believe might be against us, and some of the people who I speak with, they've had a lot of tragedy befall them. But we all have the ability to make meaning in our lives if we take responsibility for doing so. And that responsibility is a choice. So I think what I always want people to know is they may choose not to do it. They may choose to stay stuck and and remain a victim, but it is a choice. And as long as they know that they have a choice to think differently and they have a choice to grab life by the horns and savor all there is to savor, then I feel like I've done my job because if circumstances change and they choose to make that choice to do so, they'll know it's available to them. Thank you for that. I will be thinking about that for a long time. So I really appreciate that. Melissa, I just want to say thank you so much for being with us, for sharing your story, for building not one, but two companies that are really so important to so many people around the world. Thank you very much. It's just been a pleasure to speak with you. Oh, it's been such an honor to be here. Thank you so much for your insightful and deep questions. We look forward to seeing you and your products very soon. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Melissa Bernstein. I will be taking her advice to heart that we all have the responsibility to make meaning in our lives and that responsibility is a choice. As we celebrate Mental Health Awareness Month, please take the time to ensure that you're taking care of yourself and creating meaning in your own life. The mission of Women on the Move is to help women in their professional and personal lives. Our goal is to introduce you to people with great ideas, inspiring stories, and a passion to make a difference. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe so you won't miss any others. JPMorgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC.